Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Memphis Listening Lab proudly supports WYXR. They provide a curated collection of music and music history, a forum for music-related talks and performances, and a music education, appreciation, and experimentation space located in Crosstown Concourse. The lab is open Tuesday through Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can find out more information on their Instagram page at Memphis Listening Lab or on their website at memphislisteninglab.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And this week, you know, every week I say I've got a very special guest and it's because all the guests are special. But this week, and I don't know if he knows this, is someone I've been wanting to have as a guest for a long time. And that's Bill Townsend from Townsend Development. So welcome, Bill. Well, thank you very much, Emily. And thank you very much for having me on the show. Sure. Well, the, I've been wanting to have you. Of course, I'm a big, um, you know, fan of historic preservation, and um, and of course, I've done a number of shows on historic preservation and you know, real estate things like that. So, so before we get so, Bill, I invite you on the show because you've you know over the last couple of years acquired um, some very visible and really interesting and important properties, including the Lucian Theater and others that we're going to talk about. But I, I wanted to start out just by, of course, we've never met in person. I just wanted to, you know, I've been kind of sort of involved, you know, at least from a distance in historic preservation for really kind of a long time. And then a couple of years ago, you kind of popped up. And um, and, I'm, and so I'm, I'm just like, and I think you were in maybe in the food industry. So what's your story? How'd you get to Memphis if you're not from here? And then um, how'd you get from, you know, how did your career or your personal interest lead you to um, sort of the, the, the renovation of historic structures and related things? So it goes back a long way. We moved here. My family and I moved here when I was six years old. Uh, my father was an assistant football coach at what was then Memphis State. Okay. So we actually moved on campus into a rental house, and that was on the corner of Deloach and Central, and where the Fogelman Business Building now is. So I lived there as a kid, and a couple of years later, as the uh, campus was expanding, they said, you have to move, and they tore my house down. And so we moved up to the corner of Poplar and Conway in a beautiful 1928 uh, Italianate red brick house with red tile roof and beautiful marble fireplaces. Again, it was a rental through the University of Memphis. Uh, A few years after that, uh, they changed the football coaching staff, meaning my father no longer had a job there, and uh, we had to move. So we moved out to East Memphis, uh, and the Memphis State at the time uh, tore the second house down. Uh, So I think from a very visceral standpoint, 
Uh, I don't like seeing buildings torn down. Uh, building an administrative you know, business center is one thing, but my second home, the one that I loved, on my street that I loved, it's now just a parking lot. So uh, that's probably what sparked my interest in old buildings uh, in the first place. So just in well, a that's nutshell. interesting because, you know, institutions like universities and hospitals are sort of notorious for that, you know, in their outward expansion. Um, a lot of times there's these really great buildings are collateral damage. Unfortunately, yes. You know, so I ended up, uh, my father ended up as a founding athletic director at what was Shelby State Community College, which is now Southwest Technical. And my mother was a school teacher. She taught at various schools. The last three she taught at were Southside, Hamilton, and Mitchell. So when my father uh, helped start Shelby State, uh, he had, they didn't have a campus on Union. They didn't have a campus at all. And so when I was in junior high, they held their Tuesday night basketball games at Craigmont High School and their Thursday night uh, games at Melrose High School. So I would go with my parents and sell tickets. So I've got a very different exposure to Memphis than a lot of other people. I've spent a good amount of time in Orange Mound as a young man uh, going into North Memphis or Craigmont and then just, you know, where my mom taught. So uh, a very broad exposure to uh, different parts of Memphis geographically and socioeconomically. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm, you know, I've been in community development off and on for really for more than 20 years. And and I've had the opportunity to go into all of those neighborhoods, working with community development corporations. And it's it's kind of amazing. I think most people in Memphis, I, I, I say they either drive up and down Poplar um, they drive it down Poplar and they see what's on either side or they get on the expressway and they go round and round and round, but they never get off except, you know, it. Uh, so people just don't, um, the way the city developed kind of, you know, eastward um, and with this, with the, the downtown being right on the river, that there's no, you don't really drive through those neighborhoods unless it's intentional. Uh, very, very true. You know, and I think that's one of the, so, I ended up graduating from high school and I ended up going to various colleges. My father had become very ill uh, a long time ago. Uh, and then I ended up uh, transferring. I went to Shelby State Community College uh, and then transferred to Rhodes College, where I graduated from in 1984. Uh, so my experience uh, in East Memphis and then near the University of Memphis campus and then living for three years in Midtown, you know, I really enjoy older buildings. Uh, I enjoy uh, Memphis. Uh, for everything that it has to offer, uh, good, bad, and otherwise, you know, and I think there's a lot of good. Uh, I left here in 1984 to go to California to go to graduate school. Uh, at that point in time, uh, Memphis was really uh, just starting to transition from a city with a central core to uh, what it's become today, uh, and that's both good and bad. You know, the huge exodus of people to Collierville and South Haven and Olive Branch where really the growth for the metro area happened there and the city sitting stagnant, uh, it was very, very unfortunate. I was very shocked when I came back and saw how hollowed out uh, the number of the, the central core of the city had become. Yeah, you said it was good and bad, and I'm wondering what the good is. I'm not seeing any good in that scenario, but um, <laughs> maybe there I, I do see a lot of good. I mean, when I was a kid here, the racial tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Uh, and everything from what I saw was completely segregated. Now, look, you can go to some of the suburbs that are still 
self-segregating. Uh, but the central part of the city, I think, is much more integral. I don't want to use, I'm using that word, meaning that it's, you know, essentially everyone is come together, you know, and you don't feel that tremendous amount of tension that used to be there. Uh, I think that another good aspect of this is that there's finally some money coming in from out of state, out of, out of country even, and investing in Memphis. Whereas when I left, most of the investment was held by a small proportion of families who took a lot of their resources and just moved east and sort of abandoned the center part of the city. I completely agree with that. Um, you know, in a lot of different sectors from affordable housing development uh, through, you know, higher end properties, you you are seeing out of town investors. And I also see that as an advantage um, because, first of all, the pool of capital is just bigger, but also it's just it's 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 insular the other way. I mean, it's better to have a variety of perspectives. And I think um, so. But did you move back to Memphis? Um, did you move back to Memphis and then, you know, get interested in the, the real estate piece or did you, were you here visiting and you had an opportunity and that just, you went down it the was, rabbit hole? It's, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of personal aspects to this. I've recently gone through a lot of uh, personnel, uh, person, personal changes with my uh, home life out in California. I moved to California in 84. I've got two sets of twins, uh, Ashley and Jennifer are junior, I mean, a freshman in college. And my younger set of twins, Brandon and Caroline, are at boarding school on the East Coast. Okay. Uh, when I, I've lived in London, Los Angeles, had offices in San Francisco, Omaha, Chicago, spent a good amount of time in New York. Uh, so a very broad set of places. But when I looked around and said, where do I want to spend, you know, the rest of my life, it was pretty easy. Uh, and that was Memphis. So okay. I was uh, getting involved with the Rhodes Alumni Board, uh, where I was later president. And I was actually coming from my brother's house in East Memphis. I got off on the wrong exit and I was coming down North Watkins. Now, this is a street that I traveled many times when I was at Rhodes. This was seven or eight years ago, and I was absolutely shocked at that neighborhood because it had been just a blue-collar neighborhood, I assume sort of mixed race, and I would say two out of three houses were boarded up. And I started looking at a lot of statistics, and at one point, uh, Memphis had 5.1% of its housing stock vacant. Uh, Detroit, at its peak, had 3.7%. So Memphis was in much more dire straits uh, than Detroit. And I still think, you know, Memphis has a long way to go. Tremendous amounts of blight, uh, in addition to institutionalized racism and poverty, you know, and the credit crisis of 2008 to 2010, you know, decimated homeownership, especially in the African-American community here. Rents have gone through the roof. So I think they're turning it, you know, 90 degrees. We have a tremendous potential. We, meaning people who really care about the core of Memphis, to come together and help rebuild the city for all Memphians, no matter what neighborhood they're in, no matter what their socioeconomic status is. I agree. And really, I feel like um, in a lot of ways, you know, Crosstown inspired people and thought, you know what, this can really be done. Like if we can, if, if that can be redeveloped, then some of these other things that this uh, seems are smaller and seem more manageable can be. So, yeah, I completely agree. Um, it is a, a great opportunity and um, and we don't have, I mean, it is getting very expensive, but I'm sure some of these out-of-town investors are still seeing opportunity to compare to other markets that are, are more expensive. 
Yes. Now, one comment on out-of-town investors. I think the out-of-town capital that comes in with, let's say, a, a, a Tom Intratour, who's going to get financing to the pinch district, I think is tremendous. The out-of-town investing that's not healthy are the hedge funds who come in and buy two and 3,000 homes. Don't take care of the properties. Raise the rents. And it, it's horrible to see what's happening. Uh, I don't know structurally how that can be addressed. I have some ideas uh, that I've preliminary discussed with a couple of city council people, but uh, that's sort of, uh, you know, for future discussions down the road. Oh, for sure. And I should have, you know, sort of clarified that. We've done a number of shows about that, about, um, you know, the impact of of -of out-of-town investors on pricing, on home ownership, on racial disparity. There's, that's a whole what I call a two beer story, you know, it right. takes you two beers at least to even have a discussion about it. So, um, and it's very, as you said, very, very complicated, but let's turn back to a more pleasant subject, which is um, some of these really cool buildings that you've acquired. And um, so I want to, I think the first one was the, I mean, the first one, the first certainly one that got a lot of publicity and attention was the Lucianne Theater. Yes, so, Lucianne Theater. So, so how did you, how, yeah, how did you get, how did you decide? I mean, that was, I think some of these people think of are, are sort of white elephants, a couple of them. People for sure thought that was going to end up being torn down because there wouldn't be a buyer for it. So how did you, how did you end up acquiring that? So let's, okay, keep in mind, I went to Rhodes College, which is on North Parkway, and North Parkway in summer are essentially one long street inside the loop, right? I then worked at Steinmark Department Store, which used to be located, I think, in the 5,000 block of summer, I think, where Ross is now. So for two and a half years, I was going up and down summer on North Parkway, going back and forth to work. That neighborhood there, anchored by the Lucienne, uh, has gone down and down and down. Okay. The theater was built in 1939-40 by the Cien Como family, opened up as a theater. Uh, they converted to a bowling alley in 1958, I believe. Then briefly in the 60s, it was a nightclub. And in 1975, it became the Paris Triple X Adult Theater, later purchased by the Romantics uh, Adult Novelty Chain. I think that's the good phrasing for that. That's uh, a technical term for that. Yes. But when I was in college... That neighborhood was still very solid, even with the porno theater there. Uh, we used to walk up to the Brown Jug liquor store. We would take our cars up and go to Miss Pat's right over the Scott Street Viaduct. And summer has just been decimated. Now, you had a, you know, a couple of different confluences of events. You had the ill-fated uh, freeway that was going to go straight through Overton Park. That was defeated in 1972, 50th anniversary uh, over to Park Conservancy is having an event uh, on April 2nd uh, to celebrate that, you know, in 100 years of the park. But I think it was around 3,000 homes were torn down to build that corridor, which is now Sam Cooper, and even further west from the park. So you had that isolating Summer Avenue from the central part of the city, okay? At the same time, in the late 60s, you had urban renewal where roughly from what I can calculate, Beale Street, and then even going further north into what is now the medical district, about 500 African-American businesses were closed down, creating another huge swatch of land that has sat empty for the most part until now. Union Row, uh, or Union Walk rather, which is Kevin Adams' new development, will be redeveloping part of that, which has been sitting empty for over 50 years. 
So when you look at the red parts of how this was isolated out, Summer Avenue, you know, was, was isolated. You then had all the capital being pulled out going south into North Mississippi and to Collierville and Germantown, and Summer Avenue just declined, declined, declined. Uh, I think the city, for a long time, for what I can tell in the 80s and 90s, did not really restrict zoning because uh, they just were so desperate for any kind of tax revenue. So when I was at a Rhodes College meeting, one of their chief administrators asked me and said, hey, you know, if you care about the school, we need help. We need somebody to buy the old porno theater and start cleaning up the neighborhood. Now, keep in mind, I went to the University of Southern California. When I started there in 1984, shortly thereafter, they had a new president, President Sample. And he turned to their senior staff and said, what is our relationship with like in the community around here? And everyone was like, we have none. So he pushed everybody out the door and said, go meet people in the neighborhood. Okay, get to know them. He then went to the alums and said, I need your help. Okay, we don't want to push people out of the neighborhood, but we've got to make the neighborhood safer for current and future residents. And so I've been doing that on the eastern part of Hind Park, which abuts to Rhodes College. Uh, my hope is that eventually Rhodes's new president who comes in this fall will adopt a similar approach and say that they need to look beyond the boundaries of their beautiful fence where I went to school uh, and really say that in order for Rhodes to be the most successful it can be long term, that it really needs to go beyond those boundaries and start controlling the, uh, the dialogue that happens within those neighborhoods. And that includes going north, that includes going west, and that includes going east. Well, you know that Rhodes has, they've done some community engagement, especially in that Hollywood Hyde Park area. And I was involved in that. It was probably 15 years ago. And um, I think it was well-meaning, but of course, it's like you said, there's a big fence and there's, you know, these young, affluent white kids helicoptering into one of the poorest neighborhoods. And so it'd probably be a little bit different because that summer area, it's not quite as poor, but also it's a lot of commercial. I agree with you. I think there's some great opportunities for collaboration and of course, and, and of course, Rhodes is beefing up. I mean, always was in urban studies, but um, a friend of mine, Austin Harrison, who you probably met, who comes on the show is an urban planner and he just became a professor there. So there's also opportunities to get involved with the planning and community engagement with some of the students. So I love this idea. So they've got, they've got a very effective, uh, I think her, it's her title's director of community relations, Carrie Campbell. And she's very, very involved in, in, in many aspects of, of the neighborhood and the city. Uh, unfortunately, though, Emily, I think that what you saw 15 years ago under President Trout uh, slipped in the last five years. Uh, talking to the VECA Community Association, uh, there's volunteerism from road students has dropped off. Uh, I think that there's been a real pullback by roads uh, in the last five years. Uh, and, you know, the only good news is that there's nowhere to go from up. You know, but up. So they have a new president, Jennifer, Jennifer Collins, who's coming in. And I think she's going to be a tremendous asset to be able to pull together a very cohesive group of people and really, you know, want to engage in Memphis again. That also relates to the fact that well, Wynowin has a new college president as of last year. Uh, CBU is looking for a new college president. University of Memphis has a new college president. So in a Roughly 18 year, 18 month span, you're going to have four new college presidents. And I think that 
hopefully the new city leadership with whoever's elected to the different mayor spots can engage with all four of them because you now have five leaders of, or six leaders of major institutions who can really come together and figure out how to leverage the strengths of each institution to help not just their respective neighborhoods, but the entire city. That's a great vision. I didn't know that all, all the college presidents were turning over in that short a period of time. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're talking to Bill Townsend from Townsend Development about some historic properties he's acquired and related neighborhood revitalization activities. So before we move on, Bill, so I know you've acquired a bunch of, you know, some adjacent property on sort of the north and south sides of summer. Um, and are you, do you have particular development plans for that? Or is that kind of a acquire and hold strategy to see what's, um, what roads may want to do or to see what other players come to the table? Well, no, we've actually, I've actually been working with BRG3S, the architect, architectural firm, and we've laid out some potential plans. Uh, what I would like to see is for some of the RU1 properties that are on the northern side of Fax and behind the theater. Don't make me ring my bell. Sorry. Okay. So residential properties. Got it. All right. So what I would like to, so yes, I bought about 5.85 acres of property. Uh, one reason I've done that is I think it's tremendously undervalued. And when I say it's undervalued, that's not just by Memphis standpoints or standards. I think it's by national standards. I think that there's a tremendous overall upside for Memphis uh, and Tennessee in general. Uh, and so uh, that stretch of summer between Parkway and Hollywood is mostly zoned commercial. Some of what I bought have bought north of the theater is zoned residential. Uh, what I would like to see for the northern part of that, the, the strips, the strip of land there is possibly attached townhouses that are moderate income. So we can go into the neighborhood north of there, find people who are renting, who want to stay in the neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood and then make them owners, increasing the percentage of home ownership in that specific neighborhood. There's also no health services uh, groups right there. Uh, now there is collage dance over on Broad, which is a beautiful new facility, but uh, there's no artistic elements there in that part of Summer Avenue. Uh, parts of Summer right there are zoned for seven story buildings, parts are zoned for five. There will be mixed use, uh, all dovetailing in with the Memphis 3.0 plans for walkable neighborhoods that are going higher rather than a sweater, and also with the Tennessee Department of Transportation plan soon to be released about Summer Avenue. Very tentative plans. I'm hoping that it really comes down to this. Affordable housing, quality affordable housing, mixed-use enterprises that are providing jobs for residents of the neighborhood, and more amenities that are safer. Well, and I think that's a really, that's a very strategic location too, because it's, you know, there's a tremendous amount of activity on Broad and there's all that new housing development happening just south of there. So I think that's a, I think that's a great idea. Um, it makes, makes a lot of sense. It's very centrally located. As you said, there's some investments happening the, um, on summer and okay. All right. Well, that's great. Well, I want to see all of that come to fruition. I love summer I do I. and then a bunch of shows on summer. So um so I'm excited about that. So let's talk about the DeSoto Masonic Lodge. Now, this, this is a building that's at 272 Court at 
4th Street. And it's a, you know, Memphis has a number of former lodge, well, former or current lodge buildings. And this is one of one that's right downtown and it's a beautiful building. So what, and I did, I did, looks like this was your biggest acquisition from a cost perspective. It's a very large building. So how did you come to acquire that? And um, what excited you about it? Okay. So let me take a couple steps back. So my parents were first generation college graduates. Okay. The highest level of education of any of my grandparents was eighth grade. So I am the very, very, very lucky recipient of having received great high school education at Memphis University School on a scholarship, and then a scholarship at Rhodes College and a scholarship at the University of Southern California. Okay? So uh, I have no inherited wealth that I've drawn upon to do the things I'm doing. Uh, my ex-spouse and I did work very, very hard for a long time, and we got lucky on a, on a few things we did, to be really honest. So as I decided to move back to Memphis, I wanted to make some tangible investments here that also could make sense for the city and could make sense for me financially. Uh, I was looking for something in what's called an opportunity zone. I wanted to buy a, a building in an opportunity zone so I could have a headquarters and take advantage of certain federal tax uh, abatements and deferments. Uh, during the pandemic, I was driving downtown. I'd never seen that building at 4th and Court. And I looked up and there was a for sale sign. And I was like, what in the world is that? So we wouldn't looked at it a week later. My uh, realtor is David DePonte Cooper, LaSalle Realty. And we went in and we looked at it. And James McGraw, the Avison Young real estate agent, he was a Mason. Uh, we had a talk about it. Now, my father was a Mason. Uh, my mother was Eastern Star. My mother's parents were a Mason and Eastern Star. I, I was not. Uh, so I knew that these institutions, uh, just like churches, are very important for the, the fabric and the warp and weft of a community. Uh, they, their numbers when they built that Masonic Temple were at 10,000 members. And there were actually nine lodges that were using the building. Over the years, I think they were down to 300 active members. So, so it, could, it could the capacity was 10,000 and they were down to 300. Correct. Okay. So... I looked at it and it had gone on the market six months before, I mean, I'm sorry, six weeks before the pandemic. No one had made a bid, the stock market crashed, everything froze up. And I looked at it and I said, what, what do people want to do with it? And they go, oh, they're going to chop it into condos. This is a stunning building with beautiful public spaces. And stunning buildings with beautiful public spaces ideally are not turned into condos unless they're going to be torn down. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to take a big risk here, make the biggest investment I've ever made. And I bought it. And it took us four months to get under contract. And it took us another four months to close. And it was incredibly intricate. The Masons were just lovely people. Uh, but we had a lot of details to work through. Well, I'd love to see it because I looked at the pictures. There were some pictures published online when you acquired it. And it looked like, I mean, even if they, even if they've taken their metals and a lot of the smaller and looks like there was just an incredible amount of original detailing and rooms and furnishings. And um, it almost looked like if you, even if you wanted to make, if you did want to use it for special events, you could leave the Mason's furniture in there because it's so retro. So Emily, it's very similar to the Titanic. In the Titanic movie, they'll be going underwater and showing doors opening, and then you go into the ballroom with the staircase. 
We have the original tourist brochure from 1914. It shows pictures of different rooms and corridors. When I bought the building, I would say 90% of it, you could go and look at the picture then, look at 2021, and it was identical. It was all still just sitting right there. It was the craziest thing we've ever seen. Uh, so we bought it with most of the furniture intact. There were tremendous amounts of archival records there. Uh, we ended up saving about 52 legal boxes. We've donated that to the University of Memphis uh, because we have records going back to the 1830s. And when the city was decommissioned in the 1870s during the yellow fever epidemics, uh, I think a lot of records here in town were lost. So I think those may be the only records of many of the people who actually built the city. Uh, and they, at some point, they will go through all those records. Uh, so, the, go ahead. so that building is more than 100 years old, I think. Yes, it was, it was opened. It started in 1912. It was uh, opened in 1914. But keep in mind, the Masons had been here since the city's founding, uh, well, since the first Masonic Lodge was founded, we believe in 1830 or 31. So we had those records that had moved in. Bases themselves, most had never been remodeled, uh, good and bad. Uh, we have some very interesting plumbing that we're still working through. Uh, the deferred maintenance on the building was tremendous. So we've spent uh, the last eight months really just going through and doing a lot of powder and paint. Uh, we're actually working with a couple of consultants now to go to the city. We'd like to take the first and second floor and turn that to an event center. So similar to the columns, you know, for weddings and big parties. Uh, I was talking to Kevin Kane, the Memphis Tourism uh, Board. He said that other than the convention center, the sixth floor ballroom at the Temple is the third largest ballroom in town, uh, downtown, after the Peabody Hotel. So wow. Essentially... Uh, seven different ballrooms. Their lodge rooms really are ballrooms, the way you and I would look at those. So you mentioned um, you mentioned that you wanted to acquire uh, some property in the in an opportunity zone. And for people that don't know, that's actually you know a program. I think it was introduced in the Trump administration that. Um, it's to really to attract investors, bottom line, to attract investors to doing projects in low and moderate income neighborhoods. That's very, I think that's, there's a lot more to it than that. But, um, yeah, but essentially, the, essentially they are, the way it works is the program. I don't know if it was introduced in the Trump administration or Obama. I thought it was Obama, but it doesn't really matter. It was passed bipartisan by both, by both sides in the House and Senate. Uh, but essentially what it does is it allows the developer to take capital gains from one project, invest it into an opportunity zone, either operating business or real estate, and defer cap gains for a number of years. And if you hold it for X amount of time, then you don't pay cap gains on the incremental money you make. It's designed, it's not even really designed for moderate income uh, uh, census tracts. It's designed for low income census tracts. Uh, every state was granted a certain allocation. Uh, Paul Young, uh, head of the Downtown Memphis Commission, was part of the group who picked these census tracts uh, for Shelby County. Yeah, no, I'm. Um, it's interesting because I don't want to go. I don't want to digress too much, even though I'm a big digressor. But I've definitely seen some criticism of the program to the extent that that most of the investments have have been in so-called sort of tipping point areas that are really, and um, that are on, and I'm not 
saying that the temple falls into that category at all. I'm just saying, you know, areas that were already on the upswing and, and that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that these kind of federal programs for, I mean, the FedEx forum took advantage of new market tax credits. So uh, I mean, just well, to show you that. New market that, tax credits are separate from opportunity zones. Oh, oh, oh yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah, just to be clear. But I, I spoke with uh, Jim Wang of Greenberg Trotter, who wrote the legislation for opportunity zones. Okay. Opportunity zones were designed for operating businesses, okay, and job creation. That's what they were designed for. What's happened is, is that it's morphed into mostly real estate investments, to your point about tipping points. So that's where, though, I've got two other businesses that I'm putting into the temple for job creation, you know, and that gets really tricky. Uh, the When you look at the census tract areas, because that's how they, they were mandated that they had to choose these, you know, they, they did choose them very carefully. For example, everything surrounding the University of Memphis, okay, is an opportunity zone. And any large major state college in a way is automatically a tipping point. However, okay, University of Memphis has a lot of areas, especially south of there, south of Park, that need a significant amount of help. Oh, sure. And you've seen that the money coming in there. Now, interestingly enough, Orange Mound, you know, the first, you know, black suburb here in the country, uh, because of the way the census tracts divide it, only half of Orange Mound is in an opportunity zone, yet all of it is new market tax credits. Well, sure. It can't and and it can't cover everything. So so um so I when you when you first acquired this, um I think the article in the Daily Memphian said that you would potentially want to acquire some other property and do a bigger development. Is that still a plan? And with the, I guess I was, so, the reason I brought up the opportunity zone again is so wondering what the, if, if there was the ability to attract outside investment um, to the project, if the project was big enough as an events facility, or if it was eventually going to be bigger, it sounds like bigger. It needs to be bigger. So I bought the parking lot directly behind the temple. Uh, one of the faults of the temple when it was on the market was there was no parking. So I bought that 10,000 square foot lot with a small, uh, I'll call it a utility building on it. Uh, what I would like to do there eventually is have a tower built and have a hotel tower built. So all your modern amenities of a hotel attached to this beautiful, old, glorious structure. Uh, there are autograph by Marriott and Kimpton by IHG are two examples of that kind of hotel where they take a historic structure and either add on top or do something off to the side. Uh, I've also that's bought a, a that's a great idea. I just said that I was going to say that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know it's a little bit of an odd location uh, right now, uh, but that part of downtown, interestingly enough, uh, it has no identity. So when you look at Pinch or South Main or you know the Edge or the Medical District, you know they've all got defined. This is sort of just a blank spot. And that's one thing that I've talked to a couple other people who own property in the area about. We need to have that as a name and neighborhood, you know, so we can start marketing it, you know. And then, you know, there's a lot of empty lots there. I am sure that in the next 10 or 15 years, most of those will, will be built out. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a, thankfully, there is a gradual trend in downtown of um, building up over surface parking lots because there are so many of them. 
And there was a lot of surface parking right down there, but I don't think it's that far. It's just the psychological. It seems it's only a block or two from everything else. It's just right. maybe it's wayfinding and redevelopment. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm excited about that. I want to, like I said, if you open it up for tours, please put me on the list. I'll get you down there for sure. That's a building I have never been in. So the most recent, the building you acquired most recently is um, the Lowenstein House at Jefferson and Manassas. But that's a wonderful, wonderful property. So how did you acquire that, and what um, what do you what's great about it? That and what are you excited about? I have known about that property ever since I was a little kid. I think it was second grade. We went to the McGavney House on a tour. You know that was before the uh, Maori Nime House. Uh, was even a museum. So I'd been going down there for over, you know, 50 years, no, almost 50 years. Uh, I love that building. I love old buildings. I hate seeing them going to disrepair and getting torn down and turned into parking lots. Uh, I saw an article that uh, Henry Turley, Turley Development with Alex and Calvin, were building Orleans uh, Square right across the street. And I said to my realtor, I said, that property has been on the market. We need to go buy that property. And we put a bid in. And the people who live there uh, were quite lovely and were very idi- idiosyncratic. So, uh, but they were quite lovely. Uh, the husband had died six months prior to that. His wife was living there uh, six months out of the year. And I got no response at all. So I tracked down their son on Facebook, or what I thought was their son on Facebook. And I sent him a message and I was flying to Memphis one day and I got a phone call. And it was this guy who said, hey, you contact me about buying my mother's house in Memphis. What's up? And I gave my spiel about a loving old buildings. And he said, OK, you need Sold. to talk to my mom. Sold. Oh, I, talked, I talked to his mom the next week and she said, all right, we'll do it. Let's do it. And we got her under contract and it was an incredible challenge to have her moved out. Uh, She was a collector of everything, including every piece of paper you could possibly imagine to wrap everything else, including pieces of paper. So uh, it took us four months to get all of her things cleaned out and we closed last October and we immediately uh, cleaned it very thoroughly. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous structure. Built in 1893 by Elias Lowenstein, a German immigrant to Memphis, who'd made a tremendous fortune in the dry goods business, which later became Lowenstein's department store. Uh, The building had been the 19th century club at one point, then it had been turned into some kind of facility for young ladies. They had a 1928 addition onto it, where they tore off the Western porch. Really, it's not been maintained at all since 1998. The gas was off starting in 2009. It was being heated with 17 kerosene lanterns. Wow. Which the fumes of those are flammable with a spark at 97 degrees. Not that that ever gets that hot in Memphis in the summer. Uh, Being facetious. But all Uh, that paper she'd accumulated, that sounds like a a fire hazard. (laughs) Perhaps, you know, uh, the building, we are, I, I feel very blessed to have gotten the building. It's a gorgeous building. Uh, the parquet floors are almost completely intact. Most of the stained glass windows, the woodwork inside. We literally, today and yesterday, we're putting a roof on the flat middle section 
of the uh, structure to stop one leak. Uh, I think the building, honestly, uh, with the leaks that are getting ready to happen in the main structure, uh, probably was about two years away from having irreparable damage. Oh, wow. Uh, the facade is actually, uh, there's an easement on the facade, and that's different than being owned. So an easement is when someone has the right to control certain aspects without ownership. That is through Memphis Heritage. So we are in collaboration with them to uh, get a new roofing picked out. And we want to restore the look and appearance of the original building, which had iron fretwork. It's called cresting on certain parts of the peak and copper spires. Uh, it's hard to tell what the original roof was. Uh, but we should have uh, a decision in the next week or so about the materials, and then we need to get those ordered, and we'll be good to go. It's very exciting. It is exciting. Well, and but there, that's a neighborhood that's become, I mean, I, I say it's become somewhat institutional, the health department. And I don't say that in a bad way, but no. the health department are the hospitals. Um, and so how do you envision it possibly being used as like a, a bed and breakfast or a law firm. I mean, it could be used a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. So uh, bed and breakfast, by the way, are pretty much going by the way, uh, the wayside. Yeah. So uh, I want to turn it into a 15 room boutique hotel. Okay. So it, uh, if you go through the math, it, you can make it more than break even. Uh, it will be a tremendous asset to the Memphis medical district collaborative uh, area. I'm working with them on a possible financing package. I had Roy Thomas and Mariko Krauss with Memphis Medical came over a few weeks or a few months ago to look at the building. I'm working with uh, one of their partners at Pathways, Tracy Buckley, about some potential construction financing. But really, a boutique luxury hotel, uh, 15 rooms, so it's not going to be large. I think during the week, the natural audience or attend, you know, people using it will be. Uh, doctors and researchers visiting the Memphis Medical uh, District. And then on the weekends, uh, I see it uh, possibly tied in with the temple, where if you're going to have your wedding at the temple, which is 1.2 miles down the road and around the corner, uh, you have your entire uh, bridal party stay at the mansion. You know, have your rehearsal dinner at the mansion, big, beautiful, gorgeous Victorian temple, I mean, uh, home, and then go down to the similarly beautiful temple. That's a that's a good idea. Like you said, plus they're putting in bike lanes on Jefferson, and so there'll be all that connectivity. You know, really. Um, so the back part of it is usable. That did, so I guess the fifteen rooms would include some of that back dormitory area. Correct. The structure overall is actually in very very good shape. Uh, the main house, the eighteen ninety three eastern portion, actually was built with steel I beams, uh, which I've never seen in any home of that of that era. Uh, most of the doors uh, close very easily. A few of the slidering doors don't, but it's in remarkably good shape. The 1928 edition, uh, it's still structurally very sound. Uh, it needs everything. I mean, we have to put in new windows, new HVAC, new wiring, new plumbing, new roofing, uh, new everything. We're going to keep the floors. Uh, we're going to keep as much of the original plaster work in the main structure as we can. Uh, in the addition, it's going to be easier and more cost-effective just to take off the plaster and, and sheetrock and insulate. So I know these projects, that these three projects are all pretty different. Do you have the ability at all to sort of bundle them together from a funding perspective? I realize one's in an opportunity zone, one is a new market tax credit eligible area, which is a different kind of incentive. And so that might not work, but I'm just wondering if you can, because they all require different kinds of financing. And if you're going to do them, I'll do them all as individual projects, or if you're going to, um, 
you know, sort of package them together and try to attract investors for that? There, there might, might be a way to package some of the stuff around the temple together, because I also, also bought another tow lot and a parking garage. Right now, though, I think that's going to be very difficult. Uh, I've talked to a couple of different financing entities about hotel financing versus parking garage financing. I bought a parking garage at 199 Jefferson. Uh, they're way more interested in funding the parking garage than they are the hotel. Uh, Louisiana Theater, uh, if I get a lease from a big entity such as Live Nation or AEG or even a letter of commitment, that can help propel the financing forward and help with the new market tax credits. That's going to be completely separate than everything that I do on the loan scene mansion. So anyway, I've learned a new term. It's jargon. It's called a capital stack. It's how do you put your money together? How do you put the stack of quarters together to get your, your project done? And that's a combination of different kinds of financing and your own money and different stuff. Each one of those has its own capital stack. So be a capital stack for each project, though. You're right. Yes. It's, it's loans, it's equity, it's um, everything. Partnerships, JVs, it's everything. In the case of Craft on Concourse, it's like twine and duct tape. I mean, I always say it took everything and everyone to make that project happen. And, of course, it was a huge success. But um, And that's that's actually one of the largest new market tax credits projects in the country. They received $56 million in funding. And what about assistance? I realize there's a limit to what governments can do for private development, but they can do infrastructure and low interest financing. Do you anticipate trying to get government assistance for any? Well, I guess the one downtown you could do, there's downtown Memphis Commission incentives you could take advantage of. Paul Young and I met recently about the the pieces downtown. And so some of it I don't need. Some of it is just the initial concepts because I'm, beyond that phase. I've already bought the properties. Uh, So the two things they can provide really are some facade components, you know, and then longer term, you know, once you're done with development, they can provide longer term financing. That's the downtown Memphis Commission. Uh, For the Lowenstein Mansion, those would apply or could apply. In addition, where Memphis Medical District Collaborative has a certain amount of funds, I think it's 30 million that they administer with the pathways. And that's Tracy Buckley. I mentioned her earlier. I'm actually in the process of working on that application uh, to get some construction financing for the Lowenstein. At the same time, till I can't really get that till I do a whole series of pro forma business plans and get a full set of bids for my contract. On the pro forma business plans, uh, I'm going to be meeting with the dean of the Kevin's Wilson. Uh, hospitality school from University of Memphis uh, next week to possibly engage with them uh, to have them help uh, with those pro forma business plans and potentially set the set the Lowenstein Mansion up as a training facility so that their students can get real life experience working in a fairly low pressure small you know boutique hotel. So now that we've really we have really gone into the weeds and all these kinds of financing, which is I'm very comfortable in the weeds. I don't know about the audience, but last so last, so along those lines, last question about financing: Is the Lucian Theater in the newly created tax increment financing district for Binghampton? It might just be over the edge. No, in fact, that's one thing that I have contemplated is talking to all the merchants in that area about setting up a TIF or. Uh, I, I've got a name for that area. Just I really—it's not the name that'll stick. I call it Hollywood Heights. You've got Grandwood Heights, you've got Hollywood Boulevard, you've got Hollywood to the north, Hollywood Heights. 
So I, I think like it's, that. You know, yeah, it's not bad, you know, but we want to see what the neighbors say and the merchants. Here's the thing. I'd love to see a TIF created to fund what the Tennessee Department of Transportation wants to do on Summer Avenue between Parkway and the Scott Street overpass. They want to put in median strips with trees. They want smaller trees on the, uh, you know, lined on each side of the part uh, of the sidewalks. They want the neighborhood to be more pedestrian friendly, walkable, safe, well lit. If you look at where Rhodes is and Hind Park and Overton Park, the piece of Parkway, I mean, summer between Parkway up to Hollywood is your direct connection to Broad Avenue. Even going past that, all the way up to where the old Owens Lumberyard is, there's a new rec center that's been built, a tremendous facility for indoor sports right on that old block. So all of that is going to be attracting younger people who want a walking neighborhood with amenities and things to go to. Wow. That's uh, that's that's ama- that's amazing. I would love to see that happen on summer. So, last question. So, um, what else? What other cool buildings are on your radar screen? Um, I have one that I want you to acquire. You want to know well, what you, it is? You go first. <laughs> it's thirteen fifty two Madison at the corner of Cleveland. It's a great commercial building. And it's quite almost looks like it's porcelain. It's from 1927. It's very prominent in that Madison Heights area. I would love that building, but I don't. I've never even looked it up. I know the building exactly. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's gorgeous. Now, I, I, you know what? Let's go see. Let's. Let's just go see right now who owns that building. I don't know. Uh, Well, you know, the person who owns it is is the notorious person that sits on property. And I know the the medical district collaborative tried to work with them, and they did a whole bunch of facade improvements in that neighborhood. That building is just could be so cool, and um, nothing is happening with it. it. Just makes me sad. So please put that on your list. <laughs> you never know. Uh, one of the what I would call the winning strategies of my ability to purchase properties here in town is that my realtor and I have made some very assertive offers on properties that are off market. So uh, if the owners are listening, I would be would love to have a discussion with you, uh, joint venture or purchase or some other pops possibility. I don't think it's on the market, but um, but I would love okay. to see well, someone. Never know, you never know. It's, it's beautiful. And there's, of course, that's right in the heart of the medical district. So there are for sure, you know, incentives and assistance and planning help and um, from from that staff that you're already working with on the Lowenstein House. Okay. Well, what's interesting, and I, I, I it, it gets very tricky. Uh, if you look back at the Overton Park case, a lot of that result revolved around eminent domain and who has the ability to put eminent domain into place. There was a case uh, back in the late 80s when I was working in the food industry at Nestle uh, where the city of Glendale actually used eminent domain to take out an auto repair shop uh, because Nestle wanted to take, they had the rest of the parcel and they wanted to build on that corner. It does get very tricky though, in terms of how and when a municipality or entity should use eminent domain. At some point though, uh, cities have to be aggressive about their infrastructure. And if buildings are being set, you know, let them sit and rot, uh, eminent domain is not a bad thing for a city to be looking at 
how do they preserve their core and their history and their future? Plus, there's another local tool that you're probably aware of called the Neighborhood Preservation Act that allows adjacent property owners to to sue the owners of blighted property under the guise of um, it's it's you know it's it's the um, you know negatively affecting the plaintiff's property values and that's been used very successfully i was involved in getting that passed in the legislature probably 10 years ago it's been used very successfully by the government and property owners and to the extent that building i mean some would have to sue them but to the extent that that but that property could be considered blighted which i would say that it was um, I mean, and people may not want to sue them. I think the, those owners right. own a lot of I mean, other properties. Suing, suing an eminent domain should be you know, your last recourse. What does get frustrating, though, is prop, buildings need to be used. Having them sit empty doesn't really help the current owner other than if there's, you know, they're just waiting for property values to go up. But if they get a reasonable return, they need to sell their building if they're not going to do something you know? I agree, especially and and that and that particular location. I mean, and this is true of of um, Lucian and others. I mean, that's a redevelopment area. There's all kinds of money going in, and right. to have one building that doesn't where nothing is happening, when all this great stuff's happening around it, that's just wrong. It is. I agree. Okay. All right. Well, I'll I'll circle back and see if you've made any progress on that. Okay. Anything else, any other property you have your eyes? I mean, you may not want to say, but you are know, you done? Are you going to focus on what you have right now? Or are you are you still kind of looking at stuff? You know, I'm looking at stuff. You know, it's hard to say. Uh, there are a number of interesting properties out there. Uh, I think one of the issues is that no one in the city has a very good grasp of what's really out there in what neighborhood and what should be saved what can be saved because not every building can be saved. Uh, one thing that I have thought about is if you've got a building that's out of context. So let's say there's some buildings on vans, okay, that no longer have anything around them. There is no neighborhood, okay. There's nothing. There's nothing there for blocks. Do should that empty building sit there forever and possibly fall down? Could you move it? You know, to a neighborhood like Victorian Village and make it part of a fabric, or can it be the catalyst, you know, for another neighborhood? You know, then you go to other properties. Uh, There's a very historic uh, house in the uh, Roselle Ansdale neighborhood. That's antebellum, totally part of the context of the neighborhood, should never be moved, you know? So it gets really tricky as that, you know, what you look at and what you can do with them, because you don't want to destroy the context of a neighborhood. You know, yet at the same time, if there is no context, what do you do? Also, I feel like, I mean, I think one of the reasons people, you know, admire what you're doing is some of these buildings, especially I think the Lucianne, aren't historically important. So there's there's not always a community, like with something like the 19th century house, those things, I mean, the community rallies around, probably same thing with the Lowenstein house, if it was threatened, community would rally around and but but those buildings are are historically important. But there's so many cool old buildings that don't have the same history, but are still it's just a loss if they get torn down. It is. It's a real problem. You know, uh, I think that the plan for Summer Avenue, when they go through whether or not I end up owning these properties or not, they put in the trees and make it more walkable. You keep those historic buildings because 
you know, it, and, and then you have other buildings that come into play, you know, that, that are hopefully going to be complementary, you know, in terms of some kind of style or that they, they work with the context of that street. You know, listen, there's nothing wrong with brand new communities that have sprung up in the last 30 years outside of Memphis, outside of Cleveland, outside of Detroit, outside of Dallas. They all look the same. They've got the same shops. They're built by the same developers. They've got the same people building the homes. And they're very easy if you go from one of those to another, but they don't reflect the character and the history of the area. And that's one thing that I think is very important. I agree. Okay, that's a great way to end because that is incredibly important. So I've been talking to Bill Townsend from Townsend Development. We've been talking about a number of historic properties that he's got plan has acquired, he's got plans for. And you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just been great talking to you. And I look forward to updates. The Brooks is open in Overton Park, home to Memphis art collection since 1916. The Memphis Brooks Museum of Art holds the largest collection of world art in the region, with more than 10,000 works spanning 5,000 years of art and cultures. Remember, every Wednesday is free and open until 8 p.m. They are a proud sponsor of WYXR. For more information about the museum and their exhibitions, visit brooksmuseum.org. You belong at the Brooks. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.